We are in Ephesians chapter 1 today. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew ahead of you there, it's page 976. If you'd like to turn there for our reading this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all these things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Originally, we had announced that this morning we were going to begin a new series on standing firm in First Peter. But because of the unpredictability of South Dakota weather, we put that off a bit. Last week, we were here ready to, to share what I'm going to share this morning And all of a sudden, winter set in again, and we had to cancel our services. And so we just decided to kind of let things settle down a bit before we launch into that new series. But we are going to be in the book of 1 Peter in the coming weeks. And so if you want to begin to look at that book and and, uh, just let it become part of you to, to read through it several times, that's helpful when we begin a new series. So let me encourage you to do that. This morning, we want to be here in Ephesians chapter 1, and particularly at the end of that text that was read this morning. Let me me just read these words again to you, beginning at verse 22. It says, And he put all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church, which is his body. I want to talk about that part this morning especially. As we, as we share on this particular Sunday. I, uh, I, as I pastor more and more years, and as I'm around the church more years, I have a growing and much deeper appreciation of the church than I did years ago. It just continues to deepen um, the, the church and, and the significance of the church. There certainly, there certainly are lots of problems in the church, um, not, not not talking necessarily here, but just the church in general. The church world is full of some difficulties. There's no doubt about that, and it has its challenges. But one of the things about the church that I'm I'm more convinced of than ever, and and encouraged by greatly in these days, is though the church still continues to to have some issues at times, I do sense that the church world today, where we're at right now. Is, is in many ways fighting more proper battles. Sometimes I think the church got themselves in trouble for fighting battles that maybe didn't need to be fought. But today, though there, there are battles that are being fought, I, I sense that, 
the church is fighting the right battles more often in these days. And particularly one of those battles, I think, is the battle for the authority of Scripture. Um, anything that tends to devalue the authority of Scripture, I think, is, is an issue that the church needs to, to address and needs to be concerned about. And so I'm, I'm greatly encouraged about the church. And here in this text this morning, it is, it is amazing how Paul puts it. He says, the church, which is his body, speaking of Christ. There are lots of places in Scripture where, where the Bible talks about the church being the body of Christ. And certainly we are a local body of Christ here. But when it's talking about the body of Christ, it's talking about the body of Christ universe. The church is the universal um, church which it's speaking about here, not, not the local church, but the universal church, all those who name the name of Christ and have, have come to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and see that as their treasure. That, that's the church, wherever they're located, all around this globe today. But the scripture says that church is his body. All believers are his body. That's an amazing statement. You just stop to think about that. We are the body of Christ. What does that mean? Let me, let me just share a couple of texts with you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn. Otherwise, just listen to these texts. Beginning in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. Just listen to what the Scripture says. And, and as I read it, this whole connection between the church and the body of Christ. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, Then will he set on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats will be on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And this is the answer. And the king answered, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Brothers. The church. When you do it to the church, to the called out ones, to, if you will, the elect of every age and nation and generation, those that God is saving, When you do it to them, it says you do it to Christ. They are an extension of Him. If you will, a mystical union between Christ and His church. Christ and His body. Now another text. Another text that I think is good for us to see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, if you don't have your Bibles, listen to this. Beginning at verse 13. Listen again to the connection between, between Christ and His body. Um, beginning, let me begin at verse 12. It says, All things are lawful for me, not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body, and then he says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? You get the picture there, don't you? Christ and his body. The connection. The mystical union which exists between Christ and his church. And literally, if a believer goes into the bed of a prostitute, you see what goes with him. How can it be, the scripture says? Again, the the union, the mystical union between Christ and his church. And again and again and again, scripture talks about that. So, I think it is right to say, Christ had one body while on earth. That body now is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven because of the ascension. But he continues to have a body here on earth. And as he reigns from heaven, that body lives on the earth, his church. The body of Christ in the world as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now, I want us to think about that today. I want us to just to dwell on that a bit. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? He is reigning from heaven at the right hand of the Father, exerting kingly authority. And it says that he is accomplishing something as he reigns there. As Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, look at verse 23 now, back in our text. Back in the text in in the book of Ephesians. We want to look again. And there you find what Christ is accomplishing as he reigns in heaven, as his body is in heaven now at the right hand of the Father. His church is on earth. His body on earth is the church. And Scripture says as he sets there and as he reigns at the right hand of the Father, something is being accomplished. And as we see it there in chapter 1, again, in the text that I just read, beginning around verse 22, and it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, Christ, who fills all in all. What does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is filling all in all? What picture is he giving us there? I think the picture he's giving us there is that that his intent is to have his glory go everywhere. The glory of the Son to go everywhere, to fill all in all, everywhere with his glory. There's another place in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. If you look there, it gives us another picture of it. Um, And again, it it probably is helpful to... to, uh, to begin about seven, it says, But the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he has led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then it says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. It's speaking of Christ here. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heaven, 
that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. Picture again is that, that, that Christ is filling all things, all in all, with his glory. Um, with his glory. But how does he do it? Now that's the question. How does he do that? What does it mean that he's filling all in all? That he's filling all things with his glory? How does he do it? And it seems to me, right back in the text, we go back to chapter 1. It says that he fills all in all, but it says before that that he's the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church. I think... What Paul is saying to us here is that, that Christ, in fact, is spreading his glory through all of the earth. But the way that he's doing it now is through the church, which is his body. His body now on this earth. And part of what we are to do is to declare his glory and to spread it around. He's in heaven. We're here. Stop and think about that for a minute. We, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who is filling everything with his fullness. And how does he do it? With the church. With those of us who are here, who name the name of Christ, who who treasure him and, and have come to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And know Him in all the ways we've sung about Him this morning as our sin bearer. As the one who has has taken away the barrier that stood between us and God. He sends us to declare that glorious news everywhere. One person says this and puts it this way. God aims to fill the universe with the glory of His Son, Jesus by making the church the showcase of his perfections. God means to fill the universe with the glory of his Son by putting the church on display as the embodiment of the Son. Christ fills the universe with his glory by showing the universe his body. How he chose her, how he destined her, how he came for her, how he taught her, how he suffered for her, how he died for her and rose for her and reigns for her, how he called her and justified her and cleansed her and kept her and will raise her and glorify her and satisfy her forever and ever with himself. The church. That's how God has chosen to display his glory to this earth. How he fills all in all with his church, with his body. Turn turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 for a minute. In verse 7. We get another picture of this here. Paul continues to kind of unpack this idea of, of what that means. What's it mean that his church will display his glory? How does the church display his glory? This commentator talked about in numerous ways, but here the text says somewhat the same thing in verse 7. Of chapter 3, listen, Paul's writing and he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. 
To me, though I am the very least of all of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, you hear it again, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities. Through the church, through his body, God's means of displaying his glory on this earth right now is the church. If you name the name of Christ today, that's your mandate. To fill the earth with the fullness of God. That's an amazing mandate, isn't it? Amazing. We we stop and think about that. His body is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. But His body, the church, is here. We remain here on earth for a purpose. We have a purpose. And it's to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. To show the unsearchable riches of Christ in our life and declare it to others. Now, there's a couple of different texts that... uh, I think we see the ramifications of this in. I I want you to turn just a few books over to the book of Colossians for a minute, the passage of Scripture that we've talked about before. But Colossians, I think, is, is a book that begins to show us how that works its way out. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is speaking there, and in verse 24, he says something that I think has application to to the church and the mandate that the church has. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, that in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Um, Paul, here again, makes the connection for the sake of his body, that is, the church. But Paul is, is ministering here. He's talking about ministering to the church. As the church, he's ministering to the church. He's an apostle to the church. But he says, I'm making up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions and making it known to the church. What what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? We have to be careful there. We've talked about this before. You border on heresy if you talk about the wrong thing being lacking. If, If Christ, when he declared it is finished, did not finish a work, We can't finish it. In other words, what Christ accomplished on the cross was finished. What we needed to be reconciled to God was completed. The gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ were were produced by Christ himself. And all that we have in Christ, all of our hope in Christ, there was nothing lacking that we have to make up. And, and to believe so, as one person I said in my Sunday class would say, that's another religion. Christianity is not about God taking us so far and us going the rest of the distance. God finished a work. And we are saved as we rest in that finished work. So what does he mean when he said what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions? Well, in order to get the meaning of that, I think we have to go to another text. And that text would be, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but it's the story of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was from the church in Philippi, 
And the church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus to Paul who was in Rome. And the purpose of going to Paul in Rome was that the whole church had something they wanted to deliver to Paul, but the whole church couldn't go. And so Epaphroditus became the messenger to Paul in Rome with what the church at Philippi had sent him. And this is how Paul describes um, the work of Epaphroditus. It says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That's what Paul says back to the Philippian church as he writes back to them. In other words, he almost died. He risked his life to complete something. Complete what was lacking in their service to Paul. What the Philippians service was to Paul. And what was lacking? They sent the gifts. They all went with Epaphroditus. What was lacking is the personal presentation of those gifts by the entire Philippian church to Paul. In other words, Epaphroditus was their messenger. He went and made up what was lacking, what they were unable to do in going personally. That's the same same connotation of this text in Colossians chapter 1, where it says, Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, that in my flesh I am filling up or making up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. What was missing then in Christ's affliction? Certainly not the accomplishment of the atonement. He finished that work. But what was missing? What was missing now is Paul took that message to the church which is his body here, he says. I'm making up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions to the church, which is Christ's body. What was lacking? Well, what was lacking is the personal presentation of that by Christ himself to the church. He was now at the right hand of the Father. And so Paul is making up what's lacking, the personal presentation of that. And so again, we get a picture. We get a picture of of what it is for the church to be the body of Christ now in the world. The literal body of Christ is at the right hand of the Father. But He still has a body here on earth. And a body who has the mandate to, to, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in the sense that they are going to fill up lacking, what that is, is the personal presentation of that message to the world, of the manifold wisdom of God to the world. And sometimes that is at great cost to themselves. Paul talked about suffering, rejoicing in that suffering as he made it up. The church is now the visible presence of Christ on the earth. We are to be the body of Christ, literally Christ to our world, to declare His glory to our world an incredible mandate that we have, an incredible job description that God has given us. Let me, let me share as I close this morning a, an illustration of what that might look like. You, you need to, to ask yourself in your own life, what, what's that look like for you? What does it mean for you to be the body of Christ where you're at? What does it mean for you to, with all the fullness of God to fill all in all with the glory of Christ? And every one of us has a different answer for that because we live in different places. But there is an answer for that. And we need to think about that. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. But let me share you one specific one, one picture of one that maybe will help you to develop your own picture. 
where you live. It was 1948, and I'm reading from an article that appeared in the um, Desiring God Ministries webpage. It was 1948, during Jackie Robinson's second season in the Major League Baseball, when some bigots in Cincinnati were giving, really giving him the business. Just the previous year, Robinson had been one of the... Uh, had been the one with the monumental courage to break the color barrier as the first African-American of modern era to play baseball in the highest league. He had endured unthinkable cruelty and injustice for desegregating the game, and he was succeeding on the field and off. Not only did he bat bat just a shade under 300 in 1947, and was named Rookie of the Year, but he was holding his tongue and fists and not fighting back. But now in his second campaign, still some still weren't convinced. And Eric Mestis tells the story of the signature moment that happened in 1948. At one game in Cincinnati, when spectators in the stands were shouting racist comments at Robinson, his teammate, Pee Wee Reese, pointed, walk, pointedly walked over to him and put his arm around him as though to say to the bigots in the crowd, if you're against him, you're against all of us. It was a signature moment, and a statue commemorating it stands today in Brooklyn's minor league. But let me tell you the rest of the story. The story of Jackie Robinson. He was born in 1919 and lived till 1972 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. President Branch Rickey is one of the most powerful tales American athletics has to tell. Robinson overcame what seemed like insurmountable obstacles, not only by playing outstanding baseball, but even more significantly by not retaliating when treated with rank injustice and racism. According to Mestis, Jackie's not fighting back against such filth and injustice was as heroic an accomplishment as anything the sports world has ever witnessed. And I quote, It is easy to miss the historical magnitude of that moment in 1947 for the advance of civil rights in America. Consider that when Ricky uh, signed Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodgers, breaking the color barrier in baseball, it was the year before President Truman ordered the U.S. military desegregated, seven years before the U.S. Supreme Court rendered its decision in Brown versus Board of Education, eight years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, 10 years before President Eisenhower used the U.S. military to enable the Little Rock Nine to attend Central High School in Arkansas, 16 years before Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, 17 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and 18 years before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Many tellings of Robinson's branch story omit the importance of their shared Christian faith. Some of you have seen the movie. I haven't. I've just heard a bit about it. And knowing this story, I ask about the the movie a bit, ask how much this was portrayed, and and there are hints of it. There are hints of what I'm going to tell you in it, but it isn't isn't there for those who aren't looking fairly uh, intently. But this is is what he says. But, But few biographers have endeavored to draw it out like this. Robinson was a Christian, and his Christian faith was at the very center of his decision to accept Branch Ritchie's invitation to play for the all-white Brooklyn Dodgers. 
Branch Ritchie himself was a Bible-thumping Methodist whose faith led him to find an African-American ball player to break the color barrier. At the center of one of the most important civil rights stories in America lies two men of passionate Christian faith. Branch's strategy for the desegregation was non-retaliation, a precursor to the vision of nonviolence to come later in the civil rights movement. But it would not just do to try to follow Jesus' pattern. Branch was looking for someone with a deep faith and proven character. Nothing less than emotionally excruciating work, nothing less than emotionally excruciating work lay ahead. When Branch and Robinson met for the first time to explore the possibility, Branch grilled him for hours and made him commit to three years of non-retaliation. Ritchie pointed him to the biblical account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Ritchie told Robinson, we can't fight our way through this, Robinson. We've, we've got no army. There's virtually nobody on our side. No owners, no umpires, uh, very few newspaper men, and I'm afraid many fans will be hostile. Branch needed a man committed to living the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, the teaching that Jesus himself embodied in going to the cross. Metaxas narrates this. Ritchie saw that Robinson had plenty of experience playing with white players and that, like Ricky, he was a serious Bible-believing Christian with a strong moral character. In the struggle that lay ahead, these characteristics would be crucial. He felt strongly that the person he chose for this extraordinary task could be goaded into saying the wrong thing or appearing in any way as less than noble and dignified. The press would have a field day and the whole project would go up in flames. What was worse, if that were to happen, the whole idea of integrating baseball would likely be set back another 10 or 15 years. Ricky had to be sure he was choosing someone who would understand the tremendous import of not fighting back despite what he would hear, and he would hear plenty. But in the end, he felt he had found the man for the job. Ricky issued Robinson this pointed challenge, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough to not fight back. He concludes this way. He says, Robinson accepted and by God's grace he was able to live out the vision against the onslaught of horrible racism and what Branch called odious injustice. And now the rest is history and told in a book and motion picture alike. Robinson played 10 major league seasons. In 1949, his third season, he batted in a sounding 342, drove in 124 runs and stole 37 bases. That season, he started in the All-Star Game and won the National League Most Valuable Player Award. He batted 329 in 1953. When it was all said and done, he had played in six consecutive All-Star Games and led his team to six World Series appearances, including a seven-game World Series win in 1955. He retired from the game after the 1956 season at the age of 37. Robinson was voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962 and tragically died of a heart attack a decade later in 1972. He was 53. In April 1957, Major League Baseball universally retired Robinson's number 42, which means the number is now specially set aside in honor of him. No other player on any team can wear number 42 except on April 15th of each year, Jackie Robinson Day, when every player dons the 42. This is likely the highest possible honor in sport. I said some of you have seen the movie. Some of you have watched it. But that's the rest of the story. The rest of the story is 
taking seriously the church as the body of Christ. That we're to go into our world and we're to be an extension of Christ. We're to display His glory wherever we go. And there are countless stories like this one, other places, of the church just being the church. God, help us in that regard. Help us to be the church. God, help you and help me to think of ways in which we can be that today where we live. I hope that that we think about Robinson if you go to the movie. And, and part of what it sparks in us is a desire, a desire to be the church. Certainly, he did it this way. And we may not... Uh, cause the magnitude of change that Robinson did. But it does create change. The church being the church. God help us. The body of Christ. Matthew's going to play this morning. What it's about. The gospel. The gospel transforming us. The gospel that causes us be a part of that body and may we go in that power may we go to be the body of Christ to our world stand with me will you before we sing I'd just like you to think about your life and where you live are you being the body of Christ Do you think about it that way? You're an extension of Him wherever you are. Are you committed to displaying His glory to His worth? That's our mandate. Let's sing together. Help us, help us to, to, to catch ourselves even as we go out into this week. Help us to realize that if we name the name of Christ, then we are the body of Christ. And uh, Lord, help us. Help us to be what you want us to be for the glory of your name, that, that the earth might be filled all in all with that glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wish you dismissed.